Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and we're up to episode 113, where I had a chat with Lisa Harrow. Uh, this was an amazing uh, experience for me, a great great honour and a pleasure to, to meet her and, and to talk with her. She is, if you don't know, um, she is a New Zealand-born actress, but she is based overseas. She trained in England, uh, part of the... Um, Royal Shakespeare Company. She, you know, worked with her contemporaries, with people like Dame Judi Dench, um, Sir Patrick, um, Sir Ian McKellen, Sir Patrick Stewart. So that they were her um, her friends and workmates, and um, and she's gone on to star in TV and movies. She's, um, but she's a th- uh, you know a theatre actor first and foremost, a stage actor. And um, I caught up with her a, uh, about a month ago. She was in Wellington making her her professional debut um, on the Wellington stage. She was in an amazing play by um, Victor Roger called At the Wake, which she had. She had performed in in the Auckland production, I think, in 2014, and um, so she was back to do the Wellington production of that. And uh, so we talk a bit about that play. That play's obviously been and gone, but um, you know she has aims to to take that play overseas. Um, so she's lived in England. She's now currently um, mostly based in America, although she returns to Auckland. Um, we had a chat about her whole life, her, her amazing stories about um, you know I don't want to spoil too much, but turning down the opportunity to work with Marlon Brando because she she grew up not interested in American movies at all. To her, it was all about um, British British theatre and movies and television. Um, she had a child with Sam Neill. They appeared in some movies together. Um, they, you know, they, they sort of, um, I guess, were getting known uh, on the screen at around the same time uh, in terms of international acclaim. And, uh, yeah, so there are just some amazing stories from her. She's also... Um, big into conservation ecology um, protection of the environment so we talk about that um, I just had I just had a really great time meeting her and I I couldn't believe my luck actually I couldn't believe that she answered a request to to have a chat with me and um, I'd already seen the play when I when I um, talked to her and she was just astounding in that so uh, it was a bit of a pinch yourself moment for me so I hope you enjoy listening to this it was certainly a great thrill for me this is me chatting with acting legend living legend of uh, New Zealand and international theatre Lisa Harrow when people hear this the play will have finished of course but you're um, here in Wellington for your professional stage debut yes I know (laughs) I have a good story about that too yeah yeah. Or do you want to start with that, or do you want to... Yeah, I'll start with yeah. that, because yeah. it, it was, it, for me, it, I'm still very moved by this. this. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, Wellington, yes, it is my stage debut. I haven't, um, I've never done anything on stage. I have filmed here. Yeah, right. uh, When I did the film of Shaker Run in 84. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and then I have done um, a couple of sessions of teaching Shakespeare at Toy Fikari. Mm. But apart from that, I don't know Wellington at all. Yeah. So we um, had our opening night and uh, on Wednesday, last Wednesday and, and I came out into the foyer after that and a nice gentleman, older gentleman came and introduced himself to me and he said, I have been waiting for, for over 52 years to see you acting in Wellington and I thought, Oh, how interesting. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> and um, I said, oh, thank you, and the usual polite things. And then he said, because I was on the committee that gave you your scholarship from the 
Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council and, wow. and that yeah. took you to England to study acting. Wow. And that's the most extraordinary... I, I was so... I was so overwhelmed with a flood of... I mean, he, he gave me my life. Yeah. That's what he gave me. Yeah. Not just that bursary, that yeah. $2,500 or whatever it was, and the opportunity to travel to England and audition for RADA and then get into the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is what I'd always wanted to do since I was a kid. But he gave me the rest of my life. And I was so overwhelmed that the one thing I forgot to do was was to get his name. Yeah, I was just going to say, and who is so, this <laughs> I would love it if he happens to be listening yeah, to this, yeah. if he would contact you and then you could yeah. pass it on to me because yes. <laughs> um, I, I'm still struck very deeply by mm. that connection because mm. it's not often as an older person, you know, 52, 54 years later, you're able to reach out and say thank you to somebody mm. for giving you your life. Mm. So, if the opening night hadn't have gone well, you would have had that special moment anyway, but I take it the opening night of the play... Oh, the opening night of the play was, <laughs> was, great it, was a been, revelation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've done this play in Auckland, so yes. I knew how yeah, yeah. Well, the audiences You know were how there. it's going to hit people. Yeah. And our first, um, our preview audience in Auckland, which we didn't have here, thanks to Victor, was full of Pacifica mm. people. Mm -hmm. And the Pacifica audiences totally adore this mm. play because... <laughs> They just get it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, and, and they are—they have the license to hiss and boo <laughs> whenever yeah. Joan makes a racist yeah. comment, which is very often. Yes, um, and that's thrilling. Mm. That's really thrilling. Um, interactive theatre, really good. Yeah, very Any, visceral. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but it, we had an amazing night that night, mm. and for the boys, it was absolutely extraordinary because I'd been telling them because neither of them had been on the stage. Well, uh, Marco, who plays my grandson, is a student at Toy Ficari and has, I mean, has done... He's done a television series in Australia, mm. but television is not the theatre. Mm. And he, he'd never been in a, you know, big, as big a theatre as this. And, and the whole business of landing the lines, landing the jokes, the repartee, which mm. the play is full of so brilliantly... Um, that's not something they teach you, I don't think, at mm. drama schools mm. these days. It's all about feelings and stuff like that. But the strength of um, Victor's language is that it's it's a, a play where the word is so important mm. and how the words are used as weapons mm. against each other. It's very, very classical in that way. I thought that, and you know, I, th I wrote a review of it trying to say something along these lines, and as I wrote it, I thought, gosh, I hope, you know, other playwrights don't aren't offended by this, but I felt like it's a play where when we stand up and applaud at the end, we're applauding the script. Oh, as absolutely. much as we're as much as we're applauding absolutely. the performances in it. Yeah. And I would say, and you'll be better judged place than me, but I would say that doesn't happen all that often. People often applaud the performances and quite possibly the direction, but the script is just a, a tool in a lot of cases. That's how it seems to come across to the audience at least. I think you're right, but I think also I mean, I can't, I can't, um, I can't speak across the board mm, because mm. I, I, I don't know. I know how I approach work, and I approach work as an actor in this way. For me, an actor's job is to be the servant of the writer, mm. not the master of the writer, mm. but the servant of the writer, because the writer is the original creative force 
And what, what actors do and directors do is they bring their own particular creative skill to the, to the bringing to life of that piece of writing. Mm. And when you come across a piece of writing, as I did in early 2014 when I was sent the script, and I, I've grown up in a, basically being a, a, a performer in classical plays. I mean, I've done television and, mm. and, you know, film and stuff like that. But as a TV producer, director years ago and at the BBC said to me, Lisa, you're absolutely dreadful at delivering bad scripts. And <laughs> I said, yes, I know. Mm. Because I started out with Shakespeare and Shaw and yes. classical writers and the Greeks. And, and there is no such thing as a bad script. Mm. And there are, but there are tools that you learn, particularly with Shakespeare, about how you play the language. And that's a skill that's not taught very much, I don't think. Because a focus of drama schools, of course, now we're on the primary things of an actor's craft, which mm. is, um, uh, which is you know, film and television. So articulacy and the capacity to be heard by an audience. Um, I, 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 there's so many young actors I work with, they don't, they don't have any articulatory skills. And that's called making sure that your voice reaches the back of the audience and also making sure that the final consonants are on the end of the words and that the word, the meaning of the word is what the word means, where it's coming from in the character. Why is that word being chosen and what is the emotion that's leading into that word and how is that word used to take the argument forward or in the, in a, like a ball thrown to the other mm. actor so that it lands and comes back at you. Um, and we had a lot of time, for instance, with Marco, who is terrific as mm. Robert, but when he started, he, he, you couldn't hear a word he said, not only in the play, but also in real life, because he was a typical mumbler. Yeah, drives yeah. me mad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm 74. <laughs> don't mumble, and I sound like my mother. You know, that's true. Because of course we get because half the audiences or more are people who who are older, and our hearing declines in mm. uh, older years, and so you need to be able to hear what's being said in order to understand what's happening. But he has. I mean, it's amazing. I thought how. he was incredible, but I yes. can I can see everything that you're saying about him. I can see, you know I can imagine a rehearsal process getting him to the point that he's at. I mean, yeah. Jane, who's also extraordinary, mm. Jane Young, the director, so young, so gifted, and so able to see deeply into the heart of this play. Mm. Which, when I first did it in 2014 in Auckland. When we did our first read-through, mm. and Victor was there, he came to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, but you made me cry. And I said, well, of course. It's a, it's a play that's full of grief. Mm. And he said, well, no, but I thought I'd written the comedy. I said, well, you have, but mm. I mean, I, I'm looking at it from the point of view of someone who's played Medea. I know what's going on underneath. I absolutely... And the... And the things that are driving her is an absolutely an abyss of despair mm. from the very moment that the, because of the loss and the horror and the, everything that happened. But it comes out funny until the end when it... Um, mm. It's the funniest tragedy. 
and yes. the saddest comedy, yes. you know, simultaneously. And it, Twelfth Night. Yeah. It's a very sad comedy. Yes, yeah, that's true. Most people think it's a ha-ha-ha. Yeah, play. yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. It's a deeply, deeply moving, mm. very Did disturbing he, play. I mean, it almost feels like he wrote the play for you. Well, no, I wish he had. Yeah. Because I think he has. Yes, no, I was going to... Because gonna, he right. didn't even know me. Right, okay. Um, it was done in Palmerston North. Okay. And I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the actress right, who played okay. it first. So it was done... Yeah, right. Yeah, Roy Ward, Roy, Roy Ward directed it, who mm. also directed it in Auckland. Mm. And it was a completely different cast. Um, but Sean, who did our set, did the set for the one in Auckland. Mm. I mean, in Palmerston North. So it was done in what they call Palmy. I don't know why they yep. do that, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then we did it in Auckland at the end of 2014. Mm. Um, and now and then and then with Vi- with Victor, um, I took he he was in London, so I flew over to London, and we did some readings of it over there, with a mixture of all kinds of half Samoan people whose fathers had left their mothers when they were mm. in utero, which is, seems to be not uncommon. Um, and it's not uncommon across the board, actually. Yeah. And uh, and then um, I've been trying to uh, get some readings of it in America, but it, it, the, the person whom I want to direct it there is, or is always far too busy doing Broadway and operas. But um, Jane is going over uh, with a Fulbright scholarship, and so we're already plotting. Scheming. Scheming, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, uh, but no, Victor, he wrote it out of his sheer imagination. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just that I just leapt on it because, yeah. uh, as somebody said to me um, the other night, on the opening night, uh, Elspeth Sands, the writer, mm. whom I've known since I was at Auckland University, and she, she and I used to be in the drama club at Auckland University, and she did costumes and stuff like that. So I've known her when she was married to Bruce Purchase and all and her son um, looked after my boy for a while. I mean, we're very closely connected. Mm. And she said to me, I've seen you in so many roles, and this is the first role that takes all the roles you've ever played and smushes them all together, and your life as well. She said, your mm. life as a mother, your life as, as, a, as a lover, your life as a, dis, as a disappointed person, your life as a, a, you know, a happy person, all of these things. So and, the never, char- and the character as an actor. And, uh, but I'm, yes, exactly. Yeah. Actually, I've never yeah. seen, a, seen you in a role that totally and utterly is you. It's mm. fabulous, mm. yes. Mm. Yeah. And that's true. Mm. So how he knew that, that I don't know. Yeah, it's like its purpose. Yes, felt, exactly. and, and my mother was called Joan. Wow. So the whole thing is too wow. close. Wow. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I, this might not mean much to anyone else, but I was thinking how f- funny it was that it was scheduled in Circa straight after a play called Joan. About, yes, I noticed that. Uh, that Tom Scott wrote about his mother who had a completely different version of events but some similarities in, really? in being, you know, cruel and wisecracking and having an unbearable grief that sort of she carried through. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. It was amazing. And, 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 um, and, and essentially it was a play, although this one was just a two-hander, but it was built around, I guess, a, you know, a tour de force performance by the lead actor, really, mm. is what it was, a, a, as is at the wake. So, yeah, there was some real... I was sitting watching it going, wow, this is quite incredible that I've just recently watched this play called Joan and here I am watching 
a different version of a very similar character I with the same to name. I wonder yeah. if there's something in the name Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, given my mother, who was a very formidable, strong woman, and um, somewhat cutting, could be. Mm. And then I have a wonderful friend in Vermont where I live with my American husband some part, for part of the year. And as I reflect, she has some of those qualities too. Mm. So mm. Joan, mm. And Joan Littlewood was... <laughs> Oh, have to, we have to do a survey on mm. those characters who are called Joan. Joan Collins, Joan Crawford. <laughs> there are some pretty... Oh, there are. <laughs> pretty formidable, hefty Jones. There that... <laughs> are, there are. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you, we started this by you being taken back 52 years. I wonder if you can take me back 72 years or 70 years or 74 years to um, to your... You mentioned that it had acting and being on the stage had been a dream since you can remember. So tell me about growing up in Auckland. <clears throat> well, I just the dream mm. was actually acting Shakespeare at Stratford-on-Avon, mm. mm. not being an actress. Oh, right. Just I, I, all I wanted to just do... Just a specific... Because of, and, and I realised that was very strange, mm. but it's to do with my love of that language. It's to do with some deep... And I don't know whether it's genetic. I don't know whether it's because... Um, my life in Auckland as a child, I mean, we were read to hugely, um, but, and, and so lit- books and literature was very, obviously, was obviously central to our mm. lives, but I, I don't know if it was that, but for me, acting is about language, and that's why in the end, um, being in the theatre is the most rewarding thing, and the most difficult thing for an actor to do. Anyway, my childhood in Auckland, I grew up I was born in Takapuna, and um, my dad was obviously away at war, like so many were, and we lived in a house with my, my maternal grandmother and my mother's sister and her little boy and my brother and me, and then we moved into a transit camp waiting for a state house, and then my sister was born, and then we moved to Mount Roskill to a state house. My dad was a scientist, a plant pathologist and an entomologist at the DSIR in Mount Albert. And, um, and my mother loved the art gallery and, and arts and feminist women and, and she was incredibly well informed and extremely critical of foreign policy and things like that. Mm. Um, and, and so we just grew up, you know, in a, in a, in that kind of a life. Um, quite left-wing. But in those days, that wasn't, at least it didn't seem to me to be particularly unusual. But I, I have, I mean, I, my mother was an extremely powerful force in my life. And there were two things that, um, lessons, one might say, I learned from her. And one was, no, three. One was to have very high standards. The second one was that American culture was going to destroy the world. And the third one was, don't trust businessmen. They are, they're, they're not trustworthy. Yeah, she was pretty, pretty, pretty onto it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and and it's crystal so, ball stuff. Yes, it is, isn't it? Um, for little old housewife in <laughs> Epsom Avenue. But um, but w- w- the interesting thing is, as a child, we, we there was no television in our house, obviously, because there wasn't any in New Zealand mm. then. And the radio was a big part of our lives. But the one thing we weren't allowed to do was see any American films. So I grew up in a culture that was full of 
I, I played three instruments. I did the violin, the piano, and the clarinet over the years. I learned ballet for eight years, and then I joined children's theatre. So I was very into the arts. Mm. Um, I have a brother who's a farmer, so you know we we were entirely an arty family. Um, and uh, when we started going to the cinema. All we saw were European and British films. Mm. So I, when I when I was ten, I read this book called um, *Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare*, and just totally fell in love with those stories. And that was, I think, because I'd already read Greek myths and legends. Mm. Oh, we, I have to all say we were an atheist household, so um, the mythology that that the Christianity sometimes brings people the kind mm. of stories. I took all mine from the Greeks and ancient ancient. Um, mythologies, Maori mythology, that kind of thing. So um, once I'd read Lamb's Tales, I went straight to the source because we had Shakespeare books, I mean, complete works at mm. home. And I started reading, and the first one I read was The Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was completely stunned by the language. And so I started to delve and I started to work with it and speak with it and play with it. And, and then I went to the library, Epsom Library, and I looked up. Shakespeare at Stratford-on-Avon, and I found this photograph album of um, of the, it was called the Stratford Memorial Theatre in those days, with images of people acting the plays, and I went, so I asked around and discovered, oh, there was this theatre at Stratford-on-Avon where Shakespeare was born. Of course, he wasn't born there, but mm. that's another mm, story. Mm, that's mythology, mm. and um, I want to go there, and that's what I'm going to do, and I made my mind up there and then that that's what I was going to do, and. And I stuck with that. And I mean, I had such grief from everybody when I was growing up. You can't possibly, you know. I mean, first of all, Mum said, we can't afford to send you to London. Mm. And then you, I mean, you'd have to go, London that far? And then you have to train and hang, all of those things. It's like saying that you, when you grow up, you want to be in your own fairy tale. You know, that's 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 kind of what that's like saying. Well, I suppose. That's, yeah. But it's like, I didn't think so. I no, thought it was completely but I mean to, what's going to happen. I mean, to anyone else. Yes. You know. Well, of course. Um, but it never struck me that, I mean, I had this wonderful drama teacher at Epsom Grammar called Mari Godin, who had actually been my mother's... When, when, when my mother was working, Mari was the, uh, women's, the editor of the woman's page and the women's page in... Um, on the Auckland Star, and Mum was the illustrations editor. She wrote, she wrote the little things underneath the, the captions underneath mm. the photographs and stuff. And um, and so Mari used to go, oh Joan, <laughs> when I because I she used to find me in the school cloakroom sobbing away. <laughs> so I wasn't ever going to be able to. I didn't know how I was going to get from New Zealand to the other side of the world. I just didn't know how you know, that was going to be possible. Anyway, all of that. So then I went to university for a year and decided, no, this is a waste of my time. Um, I don't know what I'm going to university for. You You go to university if you're going to do something with that education, but what, what was I going to do with it? <laughs> so um, I announced that I really was going to go to England somehow. So mum and dad said, well, you've got to have another profession. Okay, so I went and I trained as a primary school teacher. And I taught at normal primary. Uh, model at the normal primary school for did my probationary year there and at the end of that year was well just sort of October November when I came down to Wellington with my mum and auditioned for this bursary and the reason I did was because I'd done a performance of Morning Becomes a Lecturer 
for the Grafton players for what was then the Auckland Festival. Everyone tells me now that it wasn't a festival, but it was the <laughs> Auckland Festival. Um, we just didn't have international people, it was just local things. Mm. And I, as a result of that performance, um, it was a three-hour play. It was only, only Eugene O'Neill play, Morning Becomes a Lecture. It's a wonderful play. Um, someone said, you know, you should go for this. So I applied anyway, and then I came down and did my audition, which, funnily enough, I simply have no memory of. <laughs> None whatsoever. Um, and then went back, and then boom, they rang. A phone, phone rang one day, and they said, well, we have decided to award you a bursary to go overseas to study which they've been doing this every year for mm. so long. Um, but we need you to be very quiet because, you know, we haven't announced it yet. And it's the biggest bursary we've ever given, but it's also the last because they were going to put the money in to the New Zealand players. Mm. And so um, they were going to set up regional theatres all around, America, around New Zealand. So I, I, I was... Well, and then at the same time, I was going through this thing at the end of my primary school a teaching education, you have to sign an agreement that you're going to be in the profession as a teacher for two years. So I went to somebody whom I knew high up and I said, what am I going to do? He said, carry on, it'll be fine. It's basically one government department working <laughs> with another. Mm. And that's, so that's what happened. So off I went to England and auditioned for RADA. I didn't audition for any other drama school. I didn't even know there was any other drama school available. Right, no backup. Just Eric Wolfe, <laughs> who played Hamlet when we did, um, we did Hamlet for the Summer Shakespeare Festival at Auckland University in 1963, he was at RADA. Um, and Bruce Purchase too, who's another New Zealand actor, mm. he, he'd been there. Um, so anyway, I auditioned for RADA and I did a couple of very serious pieces, including Lady Macbeth, of course. Mm. And uh, they called me back in and they said... Um, we understand you're doing two very similar pieces. And I said, oh, do you have something else? I said, oh, yes, I could give you Juliet, um, Caliper Pace, you fiery foot of steeds. They said, no, no, we mean comedy. I never play comedy, I said. Because <laughs> I was going to be the world's greatest tragedian. That was my mission. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, honestly, sometimes I think. Anyway, I got into writing, notwithstanding, I never play comedy. <laughs> Um, and then they cast me in comic roles. <laughs> but and in the end, in our, in our, in our um, fifth term, I played Phaedra in Hippolytus, Greek tragedy, and I got a letter, because you got letters in those days, in your little mailbox, from an agent in London who wanted, me to, who wanted to fly me to Paris to do a screen test with Marlon Brando. And I said no. And... Uh, I said, I, sorry, he's an American actor. I don't work with American actors. <laughs> I was raised to not watch American I don't know anything about it. And I, did, I said, I have seen him in Julius Caesar and he was awful. So, no. <laughs> so, um, so I went back and announced this to my, in, in passing, to my RADA classmates, who all fell down and said, you, Marlon Brando you on idiot. the waterfront. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I went, well, no, I, I'm going to join the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm not going to. And they went, please, Lisa, will you let this go? This is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and, but, but it turned out it was a film called Candy, which was apparently semi-pornographic. So, uh, you know, that, well, that wouldn't have suited me at that time because I don't play comedy, right? Mm. So um, 
So anyway, the in, in our fifth term, we did a Shakespeare and we did King John and I was Constance and King John and I got a letter in my mailbox for Shakespeare Company, opened it up, inviting me to audition. So that was, that was, that was amazing. Mm. So I did, I did a series of five auditions and um, in the mean, and, and, and then, you know, and I was invited to join their next season. It was Trevor Nunn's first season, 69. And I did, it was in five plays, and one of them was Twelfth Night, and, uh, in which I played Viola. And, no, played Olivia, and uh, Judy Dench played Viola. Um, and that was where, that's what introduced me to this extraordinary director, John Barton, who, if anyone goes onto YouTube, and watches playing Shakespeare, you will see John Barton at work, and there's no, he's recognized as the greatest teacher of how to handle Shakespeare's language in the world. And we made that series, playing Shakespeare, in the early, in, in 83. And it's, you know, it's got Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Judy Dench, Roger, oh, just endless names of, Mm. so-called famous actors now and me and um, but the most important person in it is John whose way of handling actors is so humane he's so wise he and yet he doesn't let you off the hook he keeps probing I mean he he's famous for coming to your last night with pages of notes. Right. Yeah. Because it's not enough. It mm. has to go more. Why? Mm. Because human beings are so complex, and Shakespeare, above all, understood that complexity mm. and that complete, incons- the, the, the unfathomable qualities of us, both bad and good. And he explores them all completely and utterly honestly and in all of their richness. So... Any word at any time from any place, from the, any character, has a history, has a, 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 a um, genesis in some much deeper feeling. Nothing is is to be skipped over, mm. and so and so he would sometimes ask you to play at least four or five different <coughs> meanings in one word, and you'd be going. And, but as I've grown older and more experienced in this, in this business, I realize it's, it's the answer. I mean, it's, we have to really completely embrace just how complicated mm. we are. Yes. What sort of um, all-encompassing bubble is the Royal Shakespeare Company for you at that time like do you what I mean is that's that's life and you're quite happy in there it's oh completely happy really hard really yeah grueling, we worked we worked 11 12 hour days yeah. we did 10 shows a week um in repertoire mm. I mean we started rehearsing and then over the year we kept rehearsing so you'd go up you'd get in the morning and you start at nine o'clock in the morning with rehearsal now here's the thing no one ever did warm-up <laughs> in the Royal Shakespeare Company mm. we were playing in a 1200 12, there were 1,260 seats or something, mm. three levels. No one did a vocal warm-up. You just reached it mm. because it's a different... Uh, it, was, it was wonderful for me because I was doing the classic thing of an actor's training, having been right through RADA, 
where you, you know, and I've always maintained it's very hard to learn anything in a drama school because where you learn it is actually in the doing. And if you have a fortunate enough to work with older, experienced actors with a company, in a company, we were in two years together mm. working every day. So how much did all those wonderful older actors that I was working with teach me? I was the first kid to come from a drama school and go straight into a leading role. That had never happened before. That was difficult. But um, so I had Donald Sindon on the one hand and Lizzie Spriggs and Brenda Bruce and Emrys James, all who had been in, in the theatre for years, coming with, in the wings anywhere, saying, if you land on that word, you'll get that laugh. If you, if you, if you jump on my line, I don't get my laugh. This is what's happening. That's what's happening. But, and, and this word here, really fill it with breath and push it out, and it will be heard, but also it will fill the theatre. I mean, their, their knowledge of just stagecraft, because that's all acting is. It's a craft mm. in the end. It's a highly tuned craft. And your body and your brain and your talent and your personality and everything is, is, the, um, is at service to that craft. Um, and, it, and what you have to do basically is, what I learned was that if you trust the language and if you actually understand where the language is coming from, what its roots are, why you say that word and where maybe that's way, way down further on in the play you say the same word again but has a completely different meaning emotionally. All of those threads tied together. If you just surrender your imagination to that knowledge, you can play the role. You don't have to fabricate anything because Shakespeare gives it all to you right there. Mm. There's no, you don't need subtext, you don't need... What is my feeling? It's there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you just look at what consonants is he using? Is he using a lot of Fs? Is he using a lot of Ts? Hard consonants, soft consonants? Are there a lot of diphthongs? Are the vowels big? Just look and see what he's doing with the actual sounds of the words and how that can imbue the, how you express them. And what, is it, what does that mean to your emotion? I mean, and it's... It's a, it sounds really wanky, but it's not. It works, and that's why anyone who's interested in acting Shakespeare who might be listening to this should Google playing Shakespeare because it's on YouTube, the, most of the series, and, and you can see how he unlocks these, this, this linguistic tradition, which he was at Cambridge University, and he had a teacher called Daddy Rylands, who had a teacher called someone, called someone all the way back to David Garrick in the 18th century, who established the Royal Shakespeare, well, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre mm. in Stratford. And David Garrick, of course, would have gone back to um, the skills of even older actors. So, in a kind of curious way, John's, what he'd learned and what he was working with was a tradition mm. that went so far, far back into past centuries with people who actually had some connection maybe with the way the Elizabethan actor worked. And I'm not saying we should become Elizabethan actors. All I'm saying is we should have the same sensibility um, to the language and also that uh, recognising the... Uh, how sounds and words are so important. So, yes, the Royal Shakespeare Company was not a bubble. It was absolutely my world. Mm. And we travelled the world. 
Mm. We went on tour twice to Japan. We came out to Australia. Um, the, the, in those days, the RSC was traveling everywhere. And we would do a season in Stratford. And um, so in the afternoon, you might be playing, because three matinees a week, the after, you might be doing Twelfth Night in the afternoon, Othello in the evening. Um, the next day, you would do Winter's Tale. I mean, it, all of those plays were in our heads mm. and mm. in repertoire for a year. Yeah. Then you go on tour and then you come back to London and you spend another season in London. And in London you didn't do all the Shakespeare's, just some of them, but you rehearsed a whole new season of, of what was called modern plays. Mm. That was Shaw and mm. John Arden and Pinter and mm. things like that. So you did all that. What sort of um, time off do you get? Like what's well, the off season? Well, we had two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks. At the, end of, um, at the end of my first season, 69, we came, um, ni- early 1970, we went on tour to Japan. And so Judy Lynch and I were basically leading the company the, mm. in that, which was astounding. And then we came out to Australia, and we were in Sydney, Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, and Adelaide. And, um, uh, and then at the end of that, there was a, the company had two weeks off before we started rehearsals in London. So I came home to New Zealand, and I landed in Auckland. And as I flew over Auckland, I said to myself, wow, you've, you've realized your dream. So what are you going to do now? Because mm. I remember I never wanted to be an actress. Yeah, yeah, you just wanted to do I wanted a performance, a, a particular. At Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Because before I, after Morning Becomes a Lecture, I was offered a contract with the Melbourne Theatre Company. And I just went, I'm not going to Australia. <laughs> I mean, that's too like home. No, I'm going to... Mm. Anyway, single-minded. <laughs> so... Um, and, and so I landed, and I went. So, and then I went. No, Lisa, you're not just a Shakespearean actress. You are an actress. So you're going back, and you're going to finish the season. You're going to see what happens. So I did four years with them, mm. which was the best training anybody could ever have. That don't, they don't do two-year contracts anymore, mm. like everything else. Um, economics has taken over. See, they were subsidised so much by mm. the government in mm. those days. Not anymore. Mm. Um, and so. And then from there, I did my first television with Derek Jacobi. And, and curiously enough, it was, um, it was something that was being filmed in the Cotswolds. So I left the Royal Shakespeare Company. Two weeks later, I was back in Stratford, staying in a hotel across from the theatre, <laughs> filming a television mm. with, um, with Derek. And then, you know, I went from there to film, made my first film in Rome with Glenda Jackson. And... Uh, and then and I did a couple of those vet films um, that, based on the James Harriet books. And I just went from television to... And so I basically ended up working all over the world. Mm, mm. Um, and I kept going back to, back to the RSC for various little plays. And um, what, what, what did um, New Zealand mean to you at that time? You know, New what, Zealand always meant home. Always, I mean, when I was at yeah. drama school... And when I was at RADA, and I was so miserable. In my first term, I was so unhappy, so homesick, because London was such a mm. terrible city to live in after living in Auckland. The air was foul, and it was so lonely. It was so big. Um, I remember somebody told me that if you wandered around Piccadilly Circus, where the Bank of New Zealand was, you'd always bang into Kiwis. I never found one. <laughs> And so at the beginning of my second term, I went in to see Hugh Crutwell, the, the director of RADA, and I said, I want to leave. I want to go home. And he said, you can't. 
you have to stay. So he took me into it, thank goodness. Um, but New Zealand has always been home, no matter where I lived in, and I loved living in England. I loved the house I had in Clapham when I had my boy. Um, but I, uh, but, and I always had a home here because I had my mum and dad's house in Epsom. And would be, I'd come out here whenever I had the opportunity. And of course, once I started working in Australia, which I did a lot for a lot, for about 15 years I worked there every year, um, I could come easily because mm. I'd be flown out to Australia mm, and mm. back. And I'd just take a side trip home. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then in 84 I came out here and did those two films which was the first professional acting I did here. I did Shake Other Hearts. And Shake Other Hearts. Other Hearts, which was mm. such a wonderful mm. experience. Um, do you know I watched Shaker Run not that long ago, about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, I saw it as a kid. Yeah. And um, it was such a funny film to, to, to watch now because it's one of those, and I think New Zealand particularly seemed to make quite a few of those films in the 80s where the whole premise just can't stand the film kind of stands up but the whole premise of it does not well it was an of, American film script yeah, yeah, made in Switzerland yeah, 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 and then yeah. they couldn't make it because yeah. there was all this funding here for all these films yeah, yeah. it was ridiculous yeah <laughs> but the you know the whole premise of people I mean pork pies about the same even though they did re- remake that the whole, yeah. the whole premise of people being on the run in a country in a yes. car and yes. <laughs> is just impossible now, mm. you know but, They'd just be tracked down immediately. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> so uh, I mean, and the dangerous stumps we mm, did in that book. Mm, mm. And I was a mother, I had an eighteen-month-old who was running <laughs> around, you know, who learned to walk in Auckland. I mean, in Wellington here, and on a little apartment we had in the terrace. I mean, I was crazy, but anyway, I loved it. it was mm, well, mm. I didn't love Cliff Robertson. He was a pain in the neck. <laughs> God, he was a vain creature, and he he he, he, he epitomised everything that I knew was wrong with the American film industry. It was so funny. Crew hated him. He was <laughs> so rude and selfish and and sexist. Oh my God, he was terrible with all all the women in the film. And he and you know it was he was just the, he was a monstrous person. Maeve Garrett and I had fun, but mm. Cliff was hopeless. <laughs> I imagine the talking about that sexism thing. I imagine the you know the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's an an understanding and appreciation of men and women both being needed to perform these plays and the and the very important roles they have versus yes. this, versus the power playing of say cliche the American film industry where it's oh, about yes. a dominant male producer or director. Well, you well you know what there was sexual nonsense going on there sure. too. Um, with certain people, but that was, the, to me, the beauty of John. John recognised that Shakespeare's women, on the whole, are the teachers of men, mm. which you don't often hear said. He also recognised that in a play, for instance, The Merchant of Venice, which actor managers took over years ago, playing Shylock, who only has five scenes, and Portia has much, much bigger, something like 11 or 12, she has far more lines than, 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 than Shylock. But the, the play is seen as Shylock's play. It's Portia's play. Mm. It's the story of her emerging from this confined um, world that a woman was living in into the world, the bigger, broader, braver, more expansive male world, mm. um, and proving that she could outshine the men. 
Um, it's great. Well, and it's not about, you know, just because Shakespeare had boys playing girls, it gave them a chance to go back into breaches. No. Shakespeare was really interested in des- describing to the world that women are actually um, awesome creatures. I hate that word, awesome. No. That women can actually, <laughs> uh, women yeah. are the teachers of men. Well, who's the hypnotic star of. Um, Macbeth, or anti-heroes, Lady Macbeth, isn't it? The the play could be called Lady Macbeth. Well, the reason for that, though, is it's that that, that's the ugly stepmother syndrome Mm -hmm. in some way. I mean, she's a real baddie. Mm. I mean, the Rosalinds and Porsches and Violas and and Imogens of this world are not bad girls like Lady Macbeth. But Lady Macbeth is... Is some to someone is a victim of her of her husband's success, and yet she's fighting for his ambition. Mm. She's, but she is very formidable. No question about that. So but sort, it's a sort tragic of, figure. Sort of like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yes, in a way. Hillary Clinton is so interesting <laughs> because you know, she grew up as such a great spokeswoman mm. for equality of women and for fairness to women, and her her youth. As a when she was at Wesley College, mm. she was phenomenal for those for that kind of attitude, but also standing up against the patriarchy. But what happened for her was she she got involved with you know she, with Bill Clinton, who is obviously a charismatic, extraordinary mm. figure, and the two of them together as young people probably um, had ambitions, and of course that, that's uh, that's what human beings are full of. But so much of Hillary's life has been distorted by the the the, the alternative press. Yes. I heard during that election. I did hear on the radio because I hear I listen to the radio. I don't really watch television. Well, we don't have television where I live. Um, there was a very interesting Mormon, ex-Mormon woman, got on talking about Hillary. She was a supporter of Hillary, and she said how when she was young. In the world in which she was out in, in Utah, the Mormon world, where men rule mm. and women are just servants mm. and in all ways, um, Hillary was seen, this is way, way back when she was still married to the governor of Arkansas, she was seen as an uppity woman who was ungodlike who and was not fulfilling her place, which was to be the servant of her man. And that attitude about Hillary as an uppity person has kind of in, infected every part of America that's religious, and that's a huge part mm. of America, mm. because she doesn't... she They don't like people like her and Elizabeth. Yeah, Warren. yeah, yeah. It, it, someday someone's going to write the truly tragic story of Hillary Clinton because she's so gifted, she's so smart, she unfortunately is blighted by... I mean, they tried so hard to take her down with that ridiculous, mm. um, false murderess mm. uh, and all the things. Yes, she, her fund, the Clinton Foundation, ha- takes on a lot of money for a lot of things. Well, so does Obama, excuse mm-hmm. me, the great mm-hmm. hero of the, of the, um, you know, the Americans. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true, he was an African-American president, true African-American, because he's half African, half American. But he's not... Tickety boo clean either, really. The, the the that game, that industry of politics, um, does the exact opposite of cleansing you. Yeah. You know, you you can go in with the best intentions and be clean, and it and it and it muddies you up. Yeah. <laughs> 
one thing that you've left out in your timeline that we've got to mid 80s that that I do want to go back to because it it strikes me I wanted to bring this up anyway but you telling me how studiously you avoided American movies and how how I know <laughs> awful <laughs> they are you know where I'm going with this yeah, I, I do yes you, you you star in uh, or you appear in one of the um, great examples of uh, a nearly B grade schlocky American film in that it's the sequel to a sequel I know and and um, and it was one of my favourite films growing up and I'll tell you why because I was too young to watch The Omen. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but my brother had a, an experience watching The Omen 2, slightly underage, that it became a, a sort of, you know, a naughty thing to go and do. How do we find this film? And I get The Omen 3 instead of The Omen 2 at, at quite a young age, and it made an impression on me because, frankly, I was shit scared of horror films, and I, I tried to desensitise myself. I tried to immerse myself in the world of horror films after being so... The Omen 3 was quite an important film for me <laughs> for a very short time. <laughs> and you've probably never had anyone say that to you No, ever, no, no, no. Because I've since seen The Era of My Ways and I, I think the original film is extraordinary. The original film was wonderful. Yeah. Our film was rubbish. <laughs> but it just made me laugh thinking, you know, here you are saying, oh gosh, we grew up avoiding American cinema, didn't want anything to do with it. And that is a great example of, of not a great film. But right, well, it had an English director, in, yeah. uh, and this is not in my defence, no, but no. I mean, it had an English director. But, you know, when, when I was called in to audition for it, I, you know, I'd been doing a lot of, of, of um, theatre and stuff, and I, I'm also a great believer in auditioning. If you're asked for an audition, you go, because you just never know mm. what door will open. Yeah. Well, the door that opened for me then was the person I was auditioning with, whom I met in the in the makeup room was Sam, mm. and I had no idea who Sam was because my brilliant career hadn't arrived in England, but he was a New Zealander, and I was always so homesick. And it was the first Kiwi, apart from friends of mine, mm. that I'd met since God knows when, and you know we within a week of working together on the film we were living together so wow. it was a it was a kind of instant thing which mm. happens so happens in the mm -hmm. business and I, I was so overjoyed with the opportunity to work with an with a country with a with a new zealander that mm. i didn't give a damn who was making the film <laughs> yeah yeah i yeah. mean and of course yeah the whole, you found your happiness the whole, within the film you exactly, found something the whole that premise worked of the film was ludicrous. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but uh, as uh, uh, sequels of sequels of horror well, not, films not tend even to as be, a sequel though. of a sequel of a sequel. The whole premise that there was sure. a, such a thing as an antichrist yes. was just, you know, beyond. Because uh, I'm an atheist, right? Sure, uh, yeah, yeah. But the other thing was the person who wrote the film, Andrew Birkin, yeah. was the the partner of one of my closest friends. Right. So there was that too. Right. And um, and I just thought, well. Okay, Lisa, you've done what you want to do. Now, just go out into this other world called... I mean, I'd made my first film in Rome and mm. and all of that. And and then and then I'd also made a couple of other films in quite romantic places. All right, make a film in London and do that. So that's what I did. I did it. And it was ridiculous. Mm. But because this, the number of special effects and things you had to... Mm. I, that's where I learned that filming doesn't require that you... Um, that you turn on a brilliantly articulate, well, 
finely tuned home performance. Mm, mm. You just have to make sure that you are able to hit the mark and and well, hit the mark and knock it into the ballpark at the moment that the stunt goes right yeah. or the special effect goes right. Because it doesn't matter how brilliant you are in the take, if the special effect isn't right, your take is expunged and they, they, they're working the, on the special yeah, effect. Yeah. So it took us, for instance, to blow up the film studio, it took us a whole day and a night. Mm. And, uh, and then the sequence where I find 666 on his, forehead, on his head, mm. we shot that in three different locations. <laughs> so one, you know, one location was the stairs, climbing yeah. up the stairs, cut, so climbing up the stairs, cut, and then three days later you, fil- you film opening the door and you know I mean yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous <laughs> so the film doesn't you know but it gave me a son yeah yeah, yeah. so I yeah I you like that film for that reason yeah I was going to say the film doesn't do wonders for your career but it's it doesn't do anything bad for your career mm. it's just not a great no, it's, it's also, just not a well remembered mm. film but then you have a fondness from it yes but also you know there comes a time in a girl's place when she thinks, okay, Hollywood, I'm going to hit Hollywood. Mm. And there was one moment when I thought that was going to happen and then, and then that didn't happen. Because um, one's life is full of working um, on a project and suddenly they, just, they change their minds. Mm. Um, and uh, so I just thought, well... Because the only American attached to that film, apart from it was 20th Century Fox was Harvey Bernstein, who was a producer um, from America. But everybody else on the film were English. It was, an, it was English 20th Century Fox mm, that mm, did it. Mm. Um, and an English writer, English director, English cast, mm. apart from, well, a couple of American actors who are living in England. Now you are starting to sound like you're defending... No, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm, I'm just not. joking. I'm talking about going to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, Hollywood, because yeah, yeah. I by then I'd been yeah. I'd been in Los Angeles a lot, mm. uh, but because I in 1976, Patrick Stewart and I and an actor called Tony Church, in conjunction with a professor of English from Shakespeare from um, Santa Barbara University, started an organisation, which we had originally called Actors in Residence. Which took, which is now called Actors from the London Stage, and it took Royal Shakespeare Company actors to American universities to teach, to talk about Shakespeare in English departments, not drama departments, although there were some drama departments. But the fact, the initial premise was that we would go into English departments and talk about Shakespeare as a dramatic text, not literature, mm, mm. because this professor who had started bringing his students over to shake to Stratford some years before and had actors come and talk to them afterwards at the Dirty Duck at the pub where everyone hangs out, realised the benefit of having an actor speaking to English students about what it was like to be within the plays rather than commenting on them in terms of their literature. Because this whole cult of... It's a whole careers are built mm. on writing learned texts about Shakespeare that have no relevance to the plays uh, as pieces of drama, none. Mm. Because they talk about it in a much more heightened kind of uh, aloof sort of looking down on the, uh, as bits of script on a page, but they're not about living, breathing plays. So this was a very successful program. 
and um, and we spent a lot of time in on the on the west coast doing that and and I'd, I'd done this television series called Nancy Astor and that had had big success in America mm. so I'd been over there and I'd got an American agent and all of those things it was beginning to happen but um, but no final conflict didn't lead to anything except <laughs> a boy yeah yeah and you um, get asked all the time about your marriage to Sam Neill you were not married no never no. married no you had a child we had a boy yeah Tim but we were never married yeah 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 well, but we share a boy. Yes, I was yes. going to say, and you and you did some other film work or mo- uh, filming together. You uh, yes, but before of... Tim arrived, yes, we did. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. and no, and then we did Jessica in yeah. um, in mm. in Orange in uh, not Orange, yes, in 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 Australia mm. um, a few years ago now. But we mm, did a mm. television series there with another New Zealand actress called um, Huh Brain. My memory <laughs> gone. I can see her face, Leonie. No, if I could Google it, I would. But yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we did that. Yeah, yeah. And that was lovely because Tim came over and spent time with us while we mm. were there, and that's why for Tim filled his he filled his first passport before he was eleven yeah, because wow. he was constantly <laughs> traveling with me because he went everywhere I went. He was also traveling to be with Sam. He, I mean, he he was a truly world yeah, child, peripatetic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, you have a story about him watching The Omen 3. Oh, yeah. God, he hates this story. <laughs> I hope he ne- well, he won't hear this. But anyway, yes, um, I, I, delib- I mean, obviously didn't. Yeah. Because you know how people think about their parents making, making love. Oh, my God. That's the, just the worst. Anyway, so, and I'd completely forgotten about the final conflict. And one night there was, Tim was at, uni- at college. Mm in America, and I got this phone call late at night going, of Tim hyperventilating, going, Mum, Mum, you didn't tell me, Mum. I said, what, what's happened? What's happened? He said, I've just, I've just watched the final conflict, and, and you and Dad, oh, Mum, oh, Mum. And his friends had made him sit and watch it. Oh, how cruel. They were cool, look at your Mum. <laughs> look at your Dad. How cruel. So that, and so you, you never think about that, do you, when... Um, when you do work, and you never think about your children coming late and seeing you having anal intercourse, and you know, in your father's the the the, the antichrist, and your mother kills him. I mean, you know, that's not wow. really good. And he nearly drowns your mother because that that was yeah. the scene where he pushes me off the bridge in the film, and I went down under the water, and they put too much lead weight in my wetsuit, and I couldn't get back up again. I don't know if that's cause for a, a therapy fund for him or if, or if that is the therapy. He is absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. He just... His, his, One shaky phone call and that was it, yeah. Well, you know, a few hugs and yeah. a conversation. And yeah. he's, a, he's a stalwart child. And the other day, um, he put something on Facebook saying, you know, how proud he was of both his parents. His mother had just opened and got to the amazing review for this play in Wellington. And then that night, he, was, he and his wife... We're going to join his father, um, who was interviewing on a 101 oh, of Obama. Yes, of course, so, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. he's, he's done yeah. very well yeah. for these two parents. Yeah, um, well, what a, yeah, exactly what an exciting uh, life for him to... Hopefully, kids are proud of their parents, but those are two well, quite I mean, extraordinary examples of being able to share a nice public pride. Yes, yeah. and uh, when I got my ONZM um, a couple of years ago... Um, just before they were married, I was going to head back to back to Vermont before I got. I actually I was going to 
there were reasons why I had, well, Roger had heart failure and there were things I should go back so that he could, he was here and he had heart failure. He's mm. my husband. Yeah, yeah. And we had to get back to get a post pacemaker put into him and all of that. And so I was going to not come to the ceremony and Tim said to me, no, mum, no. He said, I, um, I went to dad's ceremony when he got his thing at, um, down in Wellington and I wanted to be there when you get yours, because I don't think there are probably many children in New Zealand whose both yeah. parents in separately have been given this honour. Yeah. So I stayed, yeah. and we did, and it was lovely, it was work. But he, no, he's very proud of both of us. And it's, it's, it's you know, we have we have our families, and and Tim, I mean, Roger's, uh, Roger and I are married, and, and he's mm. the only time I've ever been married is to mm. Roger Payne. Mm whale biologist. Oh yeah, I was going to say I don't I don't want to um sidetrack too much from talking to you about you but it is worth mentioning your, your what your husband does because it is fascinating. Yes. And, I, and I know it's had a big impact in your life. Yes. quite outside of the fact that it's your husband's line of work, but you talk a little bit about who he is, what he does. Well, he's Roger Payne and he in the 60s, long before I even knew, knew of him. Yeah. Um was the co-discoverer of um, that the sounds that emanate from male humpback whales are songs and they're songs in the sense that they are actually composed. They, his first wife, who was working with him, actually went on to discover that they use rhyme as a mnemonic device and their songs are used as sonata form. So music is older than our species, mm. which of course anybody knows about yeah, the yeah. natural world knows, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. We are not special. <laughs> um, in fact, 90% of our DNA is bacterial and 10% is human. So mm. that's, we are very much like the rest of the world, completely run by bacteria. Mm. Um, but he discovered that, and as David Attenborough said, single-handedly launched the Save the Whale movement, because what Roger did was he made a record of these recordings that he... Um, he worked on of these whale sounds that he recorded and identified and and that was songs of the humpback whale in the mm. 60s 68 I think it came out and he gave it to a whole number of of um, leading pop stars at the time and they all started using it in their music and suddenly everyone was talking about the fact that these animals that were being killed in their tens of thousands every year mm. were actually communicating and they were they had intelligence and in the case of humpback whales they actually were composer poets mm. even birds don't change their bird song particularly but whales they seem to have a five-year cycle and there was a great story one of um recently well maybe 10 15 years ago someone who was working on whale song on in australia discovered that on the west coast of Australia, there's one, there was one kind of whale song in this particular year, and on the east coast, there's a completely different one. So separate populations. And they tracked two males from the west coast who weren't being, being particularly successful in their mm. matings, who tootled around the, the top of Australia down to the east coast and brought with them a completely different song. Oh my God, they completely scored with the females because they had a new song. And that changed the song on the East Coast because the East Coast males suddenly started picking up themes and 
tunes and sounds <laughs> from the from the song from the West Coast mm. Wales, mm. and that 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 so the East Coast morphed into something that was closer to the West Coast sound. So they are able to change wow. their songs, and and Rogers recorded that. Uh, every five years or so, the song cycles into something different. Mm, mm. So it, they're, they're continually creating new sounds and new themes. And it, because Roger's a musician, he plays the cello, and has done from the time he was a kid, um, he was able to, to, looking at the spectrogram of the sounds, sort out <coughs> that there were themes and variations. Mm. And the songs are so long, that's why they use rhyme as a mnemonic device. To get them back to the beginning again of mm, the themes. Mm, mm. And um, so how did you guys meet? So <laughs> we met in Trafalgar Square, as yeah, one does, yeah. at a rally for <laughs> Wales. I had been asked by Greenpeace to be a ce- celebrity speaker. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I still don't know why Greenpeace asked me, but anyway, I went, okay, great. So it was a nice Saturday and Trafalgar Square, the, you know, just stand up on that plinth and address the crowd, that's good. And the thing that I had to talk about was the fact that the sounds from blue, m- minky, and fin whales, um, no, blue and fin whales, go reach 13,000 miles, which is the length of the deepest ocean trench. So they can go that. So obviously, the whales have evolved to develop this, to send their sounds on these ocean trenches, because sound perpetrates much easy, more easily through mm. water than it does in the air and through the mantle of the earth. And I thought, I thought that was, I mean, I knew nothing about whales. I'd seen a dead one on, somewhere on the beach on Titarangi, but mm. I knew nothing about whales. I wasn't mm. interested in whales. I was, I was interested in recycling and eating organically, but nothing else. Mm. So anyway, I got up and I read this piece of um, Behold, I Tell You a Mystery kind of thing. And I came off and Roger was at the bottom. He'd opened the rally. And he was at the bottom of the stairs and we started talking. And we talked for three hours during which time Tim was racing around, because he was eight then, upon the squares, riding on the lions, and finally the team came and said to Roger, you've got to go, because he was on his way um, to a bunch of other things. Mm. Um, And uh, so the next day he rang me and he said, "Um, do you want to go to the zoo? Because I'd like to go to the zoo, and I don't want to go to the zoo without a kid, so can I borrow Tim? (laughs) What a line, eh? <laughs> well, he'd had four children. He knew yeah, exactly yeah, what to do. Yeah, so, yeah. not only did I go and Tim, but also my niece and nephew, um, who were playing with Tim at the time, who lived down the road. Yeah. So we all went to the zoo, and that was great. And um, then, I mean, that was it. I decided, wow, what an amazingly interesting person, uh, and completely different from the actors that you meet on the whole. Mm, mm. I mean, his. It felt like we were standing on an ocean somewhere and there was an infinite range of possibilities of ideas and thoughts and things. And he is a very charming man. So, ten weeks later, we were married in Vermont. <laughs> wow. And the, um, we only saw each other. He, he, I came to America for a week and I told... The only time I've ever told Tim a lie, I said... Because he loved Roger. I mean, when we went to the zoo, Roger... Because he was Roger, I didn't know who Roger was particularly but um, but we it's, the zoo opened their doors and we went behind all the scenes of mm. all the different mm. things we went into all the cages we looked at all the everything and you know it was amazing and Tim was riding on his shoulders and it was oh great and my niece mm. and nephew had a great time 
So um, I told him that I was going to America for work. So when I came back, I'd said, yes, I'd marry Roger. And um, he'd take me up to Vermont where we would get married because I didn't want to get married in England because it was where you, you could only get married in a registry office or a church. But he had some friends in Vermont that had a stone circle on their property. I thought, yeah, that's a good place for an actress to get married, stone circle, fine. <laughs> so when I got home, um, picked up Tim from school, brought him home, the phone rang, and it was Roger, and he asked to speak to Tim, and he asked Tim for my hand in marriage. Tim, who was eight, said, <laughs> this is the happiest day of my life, oh, because wow. now my, I'll have two fathers, and my children will have two grandfathers, and I won't have to look after mummy anymore. <laughs> so that was, okay, great, but we're getting married. So the third time we saw Roger, oh, then he came to England, to England spent a week with us there, and then um, the next time we saw him was when we flew to America to marry him. Wow. Yeah, and then we finally got to know each other. <laughs> so and it's worked out okay. <laughs> totally, yes. <laughs> Yes, he's my greatest um, gift and learning of lines that one could possibly hope for. It's so funny that you have that experience with The Omen 3 um, that you describe, you know, not a classic film, but worth doing, and then you get a son out of it, and you have this Greenpeace thing where you're like, you know, you're not against doing it, but it's not necessarily something you... you... Oh, but I'm a very much an environmentalist. By no, no, I know yes. that, but, you but, do, but have... let's say you're, you're almost kind of, what am I doing here? Why, yes. why have yes. they chosen me? And then you get a husband out of Yes, that. I know, <laughs> I know. It's a, so that's Quite why new, you have it? to just keep following wherever a door opens This is the, this is the serendipity of life, right? Yes, this indeed. This is the, the, the thing that... The, the very big things quite often come out of just little snap decisions yes. or things yeah. that you haven't fully thought through that something big's going to come from this, but it actually does. Well, no, the idea is never to think that something big is going to come mm, from anything. I, I, I just, I just um, believe that if something interesting comes up, go through it, because you just never know what might happen. So you come back to New Zealand to... We come every year. Yeah. I mean, at one, when my dad died and we lost our family home because we had to sell it, I realised then that the grief I was feeling was not just the loss of a parent. Because you know, I'd left home in 1966, mm. so it, 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 it wasn't that so. I was used to being without my parents. But it was the loss of New Zealand. Yes. And the, so the, uh, the loss of having a home here mm. because this was home. And so I... Um, and caught up Roger and he came over and we went around New Zealand looking for a place to to buy mm. and we ended up buying a place <laughs> on Banks Peninsula in Port Levy a beautiful spot where the bellbirds just completely ruled and it was just a little old 50s farmhouse with on 4.5 hectares with 84 olive trees some lemon trees very important some bush a stream beautiful but the problem was, and I knew this, but Roger was adamant because Roger, who grew up in New York, hates cities. Right, yeah. With yeah. a passion. Yeah. Which is why we live on a mountain in Vermont, mm. you know, which is not where an actor should be living, but I do, and there we are. Um, or where a whale biologist should be living either, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. And, um, and so, and we bought it, and it was fine for about 10 years. Um, but then I started working in Auckland in, 19, in 2013. Mm. So, so instead of coming to New Zealand and going down there and spending six months down there mm. and taking care of the land and, you know, all of that, 
suddenly we were in Auckland all the time. Mm. And then Tim, who moved to New Zealand in 2006 after he finished college and has lived here ever since. And when I said to him once, oh, darling, you're living in New Zealand? He said, yes, mum. You brought me up to believe it was the best country in the world. Why wouldn't I live here? Fair enough. Mm. And, um, and he's, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thrilled. And the sad thing is that my parents never saw that that happened because he came after dad died and mm. my mum had died before that. Um, but here he is and he's married now with his little boy. And, um, and that's, that's a remarkable thing mm. um, to see him as a father. And it's uh, really wonderful. And, um, and so, yeah, they live in Auckland. So I sold our lovely place down in Takao, down in mm. Port Levy last year. And I'm finding I'm buying a place up in Auckland and that will be my base from mm. now. But mm. I, I intend to come, well, I, do, I don't, want, don't like the Vermont winter. It's mm. too dangerous to old bones. Yeah, yeah, so you get to escape. I get to escape out here and, and I work out here, here and I you, love it. I was going to say, so you, you work here... Um, Work isn't necessarily what brings you here. You'd come here anyway, but that's a nice situation that while you're, when you're here, you get to work here. But here's what I think about. I mean, I, I didn't work here for a long time, mm. but then when I was asked by Sam's brother, Michael, to direct the Summer Shakespeare 50th anniversary production mm. at Auckland, and it was King Lear, and I had never directed a play in my life. Mm. And uh, it was amazing. And then I realized there's so much that I can do to give, to give to the young New Zealand actors what I learned in my life overseas. Because what are you going to do with your life? Mm. The, only, the, the thing you need to do, I think, as an artist is, and all artists do this, worth their salt, um, is, to, is to educate the young. Not really, but train them to mm. give what you know to the young, and which is exactly what... I've been doing with Marco, and it's amazing to watch mm. how he in this play has has taken to it. And it, he he's so wonderful to work because he keeps coming with these little, how do I do this and what do I do that and this and and you just you're able to go oh so that's where I was twenty you know so mm. many years ago and now I can do the same yeah oh yes I didn't know I knew so much kind of thing <laughs> so there's that, there is that about it there's mm. also being here and now I have a grandchild mm. which I always went oh yeah right grandchildren well I can I was wrong the grandchild is the most profound experience you have because of course you see you relive your own child's childhood but also it's just the joy in watching your boy play with this boy mm. and make that boy the little boy convulse and laughter it's just nothing nicer you it, yeah it fully humanizes your child yes. on a level that yes you know you get to be removed from yes. being the parent yeah. but you get to see well i was obviously quite a good parent because he's a good parent you know not yes. in a back patting way but just in a yeah and you have the, the greatest skill of the grandparent as i understand it and as i've observed uh is you get to hand them back you know, it's all, well, that's all what everyone over. says, and yes, that's right. And uh, um, but I, you know, we have I haven't been around long enough to to kind of have. Well, also yeah. he's been very much tied to his mother, which yeah, is yeah. absolutely right. That will come yeah. down the line because he's not one yet. Yeah, right. Um, 
but you know the joy every morning I wake up and there were these little videos that had been sent to me about mm. the, the what he did yesterday and and those kinds of things and it and and then I just think oh god if only I could have done that when mum and dad to my mum and dad went mm. to him was little but you, you then you realize the whole cult of grandparents which because mm. I didn't have a particularly warm relationship with my grandparents um it wasn't it wasn't that kind of schmoochy thing well generationally then that just seemed so far removed from the concerns of you, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're, I mean, you're on Facebook, you're connected to the world in a way that your grandparents would, no, would not right. have been relative to the world. Well, we then. had a nana down living yeah. in Milford and we lived in Auckland. Yeah. But she was always rather bad tempered. Yeah. And we, I always felt that we were kind of getting in her way. Yeah. Um, and the well, other grandparents lived in Timaru. She probably had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and hand wash all the clothes and no, stuff. No, so, no, you know, no, like, no. She had a washing machine. <laughs> right. No. No, we only went there for the mm. day at the beach. Mm. Um, we never stayed overnight at my mm. at my nana's because mm. we lived in Auckland. Mm. Um, but she did make good um, she did make good profiterole and cream puffs. Mm. She's very good at that. Yeah. So you act in a TV show called Step Dave. Yes, I do. Now that's um, obviously linked to you coming back to New Zealand. Do you come back because of that job, or are you here? Oh, no, I was here. Yeah. I, actually, Step Dave happened um, after At The Wake. Right. Well, no, no, it happened um, after the, the the first series happened, um, I think it was after The Wake, and then there was another series. But mm. they, they, they just asked me, and I said yes. Mm. You know, I take, I take uh, any offer from New Zealand seriously. Um, so I act here and I act in America. That's mm. what I do, I go backwards and forwards, mm. do plays. You've also, you've written a book. Yes. And well, that was, that, was, that, grew, that was a book called What Can I Do mm. that grew out of um, Roger. Roger conceived this presentation piece that we do. It's an hour long of science and poetry reflecting on why human beings need to live truly sustainably. In other words, what what is it about the science, about the physics of the of this planet that demand that we live within our means mm-hmm. and we are not? Mm. I mean, just this morning I saw a headline in the Guardian saying we need to get rid of half the people on this planet in order for this planet to survive, and it's under enormous stress at the moment. And so we've been doing it for fifteen years, and because he um, conceived the idea that. The only way you can get a scientific, a truly scientific message into the hearts and minds of people is if you open it first with poetry and with emotion. And that's true. Mm. It works. <clears throat> Funnily enough, we, um, we had these two wonderful filmmakers, Tom and Sumner Burston. Sumner saw us doing this piece in... Um, uh, at the Jackson Hole Film Festival in 2007 and she's always wanted to make a film of it and she's married to a great cameraman, Tom Burson, they live in Hastings. And um, uh, and so we, we last two years ago we really worked at getting a, pro- a project to the New Zealand Film Commission to get some money to film um, Roger and I giving a performance in a proper classical little theatre here in New Zealand, and then what was it, then Tom was going to take it into the the um, the studio, you know into the 
editing suite. And but what, the things you can do now with digital things, mm, just mm. you know, you could actually take us out of that theatre and put us in the moon. You could do anything at all. And but but that the piece itself, because it talks about life cycles, it talks about sustainability, it talks about um, the, the way we should do things according to the laws of physics, because mm. as someone once said, the laws of physics and the laws of Congress are growing increasingly divergent, mm. and the laws of physics are not likely to yield, as mm. we are seeing right now in the world. But the Film Commission turned them down, so that was a shame. But um, it, it's a terrific piece, and because of that, I wrote four editions of What Can I Do, which is just basically a listing um, under headings and why, mm. and numbers of websites that um, that are useful at up, you know, to go and to find information. Um, it was a book, I think, before its time, but really what I wanted to do with it was give it away to every member of the yeah, audience, right, yeah. because there's so much that our show... Uh, open, so many doors are open, and in an hour you cannot deal yes. with everything. Yeah. Um, and that's, I thought it was a tool for that. And I keep thinking, I've got to update it and read because there's more need for it now than there was. But I'm never in one place long enough yeah, to yeah. sit down and do that. Will you write another book? Will you do, I mean, you're a lover of language, language has been key to your career, you grew up with books, you have more stories than we can cover in this chat, which is longer than a lot of interviews you would get to give these days. Do you have plans to sit down and write your story? Well, I do have plans to sit down and make my scrapbook, because I have newspaper cuttings going wow. back to the 50s, wow. which are still in envelopes yeah. and in yeah. brown packages, sitting in filing boxes. Do you have that letter that you <coughs> turned down from the Marlon Brando... Uh, probably, yes. Probably, wow. <laughs> so that's one thing. And I've, and I've, I've um, taken lisaharrow.com because I mean to build a website. Who has time for that when you're spending your time mm. going from country to country and packing bags and moving around? And, but I'm deciding, you know, I really need to do that. But, yes, I need to write. Because if I died tomorrow, no one but I... No one but me knows what my life was. Tim, you know, he, he was only, the, he came at the very, he came at the sort of end. He, I had him when I was 38. Um, so I need to really put it, even if I just put it in bullet points, I need to lay out its history. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yes, I feel I should do that. But the idea of writing a biography seems rather arrogant. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so interesting to me, this whole thing of self. I really don't know who I am, which is why I act, I think. Because, I mean, I never know how to present myself as opposed to my character. And, um, and that really came home to me when Tim was getting married and my sister, we were all together in a house down in, in Clyde and we were all getting ready and my sister was there, my lovely sister who lives in London. And um, she had that song, Happy, on. Mm -hmm. I said, I've got to turn that song off, it's horrible. She said, what's the matter with you? She looks sad. I said, well, she's, but Tim's getting married today. And I said, yes, I know. I said, you know, the weird thing is, if I was acting a mother of a bridegroom, I know exactly how I'd feel. Mm. But because I am the mother of the bridegroom, 
I, I don't know what to feel. I, I feel sort of empty, and I think it's because I feel that evolutionarily, I've done my job, my son is now joining a wife, I have no further biological need to be here, so I may as well just quietly lie down and die. Well, my sister went, what? And I mean, because, I, I, and these words came out of my mouth, and I thought, what kind of a weird person am I? I have this picture of her just turning up the volume and happy, just to, just to you know, thinking, well, yes. this is the only thing for this, I'll just turn this up <laughs> and hit repeat. Yeah, so that, that's the thing, I, you know, it's just weird that I, people can be so sure of what it is that they... The, the, who they are. But you telling me that you were giving me a flashback to last week when I watched At the Wake, yes. and Joan has a similar version of that story around attending the wake and how she knows as an actress how to play, yes. you know, how to play grieving and how to yes. play um, exuberance and, and all the different things that she knows how to yes. play, but yes. it's all very rehearsed for her rather than. But there are naturally. moments when she's really her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. But but she gives away to the audience this. Yes. This I I would know how to do this, and yes. there is that, without it being fully spelt out. Yes, you're right. There yes. is that hint of I don't what she what she's really telling us is, I don't know who I am, when I'm not because I've got this terrible grief which we learn more and more about. Yeah. And part of it, I guess, is her, keeping that close, to begin with. Yeah. Yes. You know. Playing the role. Yeah, yeah. I don't do that at home if I'm Joan the But she, she, as she says things, I just, I mean, I'm learning the lines with Roger, I just go, God, he keeps, I keep drying on cut the crap asshole and things mm. like that. Because I just don't, I mean, I do say fuck, I do say that, but, yeah. but cut the crap asshole? I never call anybody asshole. Yeah. And uh, cut the bullshit, all that. She's just, she's just relentless. Well, it's a wonderful, um, you know, I saw in that, I guess people I know, you know, there's a wonderful savage wit about it where, mm. where what you actually get is this person is scared, this yes. person is vulnerable, yes. this person is broken and they're angry, mm. you know, so they strike out. So, yeah. so mm. it's, a really, it's a really nasty version of humour. Yes, yes. And, and I mean, you get, to, you get to really relish in that. I imagine as an, actor, as an actor, you know, you really, it's a lot of fun. And as, you know, you started this by saying the preview night or whatever in Auckland, you know, there are people booing and hissing, yeah. which is, which is <coughs> the correct response, yes. right? Like, yes. that's wonderful. Yes, know? it was. And we yeah. had that on our first night here. Because yeah. Victor put, put a whole bunch of... Um, we had a whole bunch mm. of Pacifica people and who loved mm. having the capacity to seeing someone up there and saying all these things and they loved hearing it but they also loved being able to laugh Almost, at it because yeah yeah well actually the night that I went to it there was a person that called out a couple of times yes there yeah, was yeah 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 there was some you know which which is and there were a couple of like yeah groans and there was some really yes. audible um, stuff going on in the audience, which I thought was wonderful. And there was also a, a, someone yelling out when the gay, some of that homophobic mm, stuff. That's came right. Out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, that's very, very powerful. In the, in and the, and the then he said, "Doesn't it hurt?" You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the man puts his thing up, you. <laughs> so, so what? What's the next piece of work for you? Is there something lined up immediately, or no, you, do you go not, into? A well, break? on Monday, I'm doing. Um, a workshop screen test thing for a film that's going to be completely ad-lib dialogue. 
um, which I, I don't think will be filmed till, till later in the year, but they're casting it now so they can run a couple of workshops. Well, I hope, it's, hope um, there's a break, otherwise you'll be pulling out cut the crap, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm doing that on Monday before we leave Wellington. Um, I did a play, a wonderful play in, a workshop, a wonderful play in New York just before I came out here last October. Um, uh, in September I did it in New York. Um, written by an actor, and it's the story of his parents coming from Florida, that's how his mother said it, <laughs> down up, up to Rhode Island where he was living with his boyfriend and where there was a, a, a split going between him and his boyfriend. Um, and it was for the birthday of, of, the, uh, of the father. And it, it was it, it, not quite the same character, but it was certainly a wine swelling. She drank mm. Pinot Grigio, Pinot Grigio, <laughs> um, and smoked like a chimney. And, um, mm. and it was a work, we did it for two weeks as a workshop production with eight days rehearsal, and then we did it. And there's talk about that going to some theater in America, but it still hasn't been resolved. I'm actually, we go back to America on April the 12th, uh, and then uh, in the beginning of May, I've got to go to England because John Barton, hmm. my f wonderful director, died. And I, uh, they invited me to his funeral to speak at his funeral. And I did Prospero's, uh, Prospero's uh, epilogue. Um, because I played Prospero twice mm. as a male um, recently. And then, um, but they've invited me now, that was a very private service. They've invited me to go back to Stratford-on-Avon where they're going to do the big memorial and they want me to be part of that presentation. Wow. So I'm going to go and do that and I'm also going to talk to some people about taking, doing At The Wake because there's an ongoing kind of bubble about doing it in England. Mm. I would love to do this play in London. So I'm going to do a bit of hustling about that. But there's no actual job because I've got to write my book, you know, mm. I've got to do mm. that. Um, and so that's, um, that's the plan. And then this apartment that I'm buying, or I bought, is being built in Mount Albert, right on, no, in Avondale, right on the Avondale Racecourse. And I think it will be finished sometime in August. So, so I'll come, come back, back to, to check it out. That. Yep. And maybe if this film happens, then I'll be doing that. Or maybe I won't be doing anything. I'll just be planting my vegetable garden in Vermont, which is also, <laughs> now that the snow has begun to melt, it's a lovely thing to do. It strikes me that um, this is yours is a career with, I mean, Marlon Brando screen test thing aside, this is a career with no real regrets at all. No, you know, you're, you have experiences, I'm sure you have plays that don't go as well as others. You have films that you get a sun out of, but you don't get critical acclaim for. But there are... Oh, you, you, I, I did. Well, for that one, you did. Variety. <laughs> Variety said... Lisa Harrow with, yeah. with cheekbones that can cut glass. That's one of my great reviews. Yeah. That's and those it. days I did have cheekbones that's that could go, cut that's, glass. That's, that's going on the cover of the scrapbook. <laughs> but yeah. you, it strikes me, I mean, this is a career of, of, of so many highlights and, and, and you seem to have worked through it with, with um, I guess, the right approach in terms of you understand what it's all been for. Yeah, 
to do the play and to do the work and to, do to the serve work. the words and then you know people that all this talk about older actresses not working and it's absolutely yeah. true which is why i wouldn't even consider going to hollywood now because i'm far too old but to have a part like joan at yeah. my age 74 first of all that you can remember lines that's one thing but to go from playing prospero mm. to playing joan mm. i mean it's that's it's just it's a joy it's keeps you young and it also keeps you I mean I could be in an old person's uh, senior center doing exercises which I should be because I need to be but I'm not mm. I'm just using my ma- mind the whole time and and it's really and I truly I really feel at home when I walk on the stage that's what I feel because that's all I've ever done mm. Mm. Um, and uh, and I feel I consider myself and that's why it was so amazing to meet that man and to say thank you for my life because that's what it's been. It's just what I've done. Yeah, we need to find out who he is. Yes, I'm yes. going to do some detective work for you on that. I would oh, love yeah. it if you would do that, Yeah, Simon. yeah. That would be wonderful and because I, I felt that I needed... <laughs> I mean, it was, so many people were coming at me and I wanted to take his address so I could write mm. him a thank you letter, but... He, they just just disappeared in the yeah. I, in the, it was just as after I, I walked yeah. into the foyer and yeah. hadn't even got into the main part of the foyer. Yeah, and that happened, and then he vanished. And uh, and there's something kind of quite wonderful about that. But yes, you yes. know, but I get that you want to find out who it is and, and say a proper thank you. But yes, but there is something kind of quite wonderful it about is. that too, isn't there? Those it's like moments. A, that's a fairy story. Yeah, exactly. That's it's all that's part a of fairy it. Story. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I'm conscious of how much time I've taken up of yours, but it's been so cool to chat and to meet you. Um, is there anything that that you wish I'd asked you? No, no. Or, I mean, that, just... or that you want to put across that, no, that we I, haven't I, covered? It's been lovely just to chat about, yeah. you know, in a kind of loose way. Yeah, yeah. No, not really. I mean, it's endless. If you can talk about everything you've done in your life over... Yeah, 50 well, years you, know, you take a week well I'm trying you? to avoid plot spoilers for the yes. scrapbook you see yes. like yeah. <laughs> what a gentleman <laughs> thanks so much well thank you Yeah. now do I just get your podcast by just going online to Simon Sweetman going onto your thing off the yeah. tracks by the way I read your review Victor sent me your review of the play yeah it's lovely thank you oh cool, cool. and um and and and, it, and I don't have to join any kind of organisation. It's not a cult. No, 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 no. We don't. There's no money. Money doesn't change hands. No, no, it's hands not money. No, I mean in terms. I'm not going to bug you with emails. Because I've never listened to a podcast. Oh, well, I'll send it to you.